Well, happy Super Bowl Sunday. In honor of the Super Bowl, I thought I would tell you about my football glory days. Um, when I was in college, uh, I was on this intramural team. We ended up going 16-0. I was the quarterback, and we won the championship. It's pretty cool. Um, before we got to that point, though, um, we didn't know we were any good. And we were lining up the first uh, game, and there was this guy on the other team that was just huge. I mean, like, just massive. And I turned to my friend, and he's also a big guy, and I was like, dude, have you seen him? And he just, my friend looked at him and said, that guy? That guy? And the reason I tell you that story is not just because it's Super Bowl Sunday, but because in today's text, that's what God is going to do to Pharaoh and to Pharaoh's gods. He's going to look at the nation of Israel and say, that guy? And that's also what God is going to do for us today. The book of Exodus is about God rescuing his people out of slavery, drawing them out of slavery so that he can draw them in to worship. God has drawn Moses out of the water and out of the wilderness to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Last week, we saw that Pharaoh did not listen, but actually made things worse for the Israelites. But God promised Moses that he would indeed rescue his people. And that's where we're picking up the story today. God is going to send 10 plagues on Pharaoh and on the Egyptians. Today, we're going to look at the first nine of them because the first nine come together in three cycles of three. And then next week, we'll look at the 10th plague and God's response to it. But today we're going to look at nine plagues. We're going to cover a lot of scripture today. But we're going to ask one question as we go through this. What is God's purpose in the plagues? What is God's purpose in the plagues? So first, we're going to walk through and do an overview of the plagues. Then we're going to talk about what God's purpose is in it. So Exodus chapter seven, if you have a Bible, we're going to start in verse 14. This is on page 52. If you want to use one of the Bibles there, page 52. The first plague is God is going to turn the water of the land to blood. Look at Exodus chapter seven, verse 20. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and his officials. He raised the staff and struck the water in the Nile and all the water in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish in the Nile died and the river smelled so bad the Egyptians could not drink water from it. There was blood throughout the land of Egypt. If you remember in chapter one of Exodus, Pharaoh drowns the children of Israel in the Nile. Now God is turning the Nile against them. The Nile was the source of flourishing and growth of the Egyptian empire. 
And so to affect the Nile is to show that you have power over Egypt. And that's what God is doing. The Nile was also worshiped as a God in Egypt. His name was Happy. But Yahweh is showing, the Lord is showing that he has power over the Nile. The second plague. God brings frogs. He sends frogs onto the land. Look at chapter eight, verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and tell him, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let them go, then I will plague all your territory with frogs. The Nile, again, he's affecting the Nile. The Nile will swarm with frogs. They will come up and go into your palace, into your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and your people and into your ovens and kneading bowls. The frogs will come up on you, your people and all your officials. Now, isn't this kind of a random thing to do? It's like, we're just gonna invade you with frogs and you're gonna hate it. Uh, Yesterday, we cooked all day, basically. I smoked a brisket and Courtney made a bunch of different stuff in the oven. And I'm just imagining, I'm, I'm, I'm cooking that stuff and I'm imagining what would I do if just frogs were just crawling up in my oven or in my smoker? And that's what God does to Egypt. I think there is some significance here. Um, the Egyptian fertility god was named Haggit, and he was pictured with the head of a frog. And so I think maybe there's a reference there. So the one who's supposed to give life is represented with a frog's head in Egypt. But what's interesting, verse 7, But the magicians did the same thing by their occult practices and brought frogs up onto the land of Egypt. And this is like scoring on your own team. This is like shooting at your own basket, all right? It's like, wait a minute, y'all are bringing more frogs. So everybody's annoyed that there are so many frogs and the magician's solution is to go out and be like, but watch this, more frogs. (laughs) And... Pharaoh says, okay, so could you make them go away, please? And they can't. Only God can. And so, verses 12 through 15, after Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord for help concerning the frogs that he had brought against Pharaoh. The Lord did, as Moses said, the frogs in the houses, courtyards, and fields died. They piled them in countless heaps and there was a terrible odor in the land. But when Pharaoh saw there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So the God of the Egyptians, the fertility God, who's supposed to bring life is personified as a frog. And now there are piles of dead frogs that stink. And God is showing once again, that guy? The third plague, gnats, also annoying. Look at verse 16 of chapter eight. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the land and it will become gnats throughout the land of Egypt. And they did this. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff. And when he struck the dust of the land, gnats were on people and animals. 
All the dust of the land became gnats throughout the land of Egypt. Now, notice that it's the dust that's turning into gnats. God created mankind out of the dust. And then after the fall in Genesis chapter three, God said, you're going to return to the dust. So what is God doing here? He's, he's showing that he controls life and death. The Lord controls life and death. And so these gnats come up. Verse 18, the magicians this time tried to produce gnats using their occult practices, but they could not. The gnats remained on people and animals. And then listen to what the magicians say. Verse 19, this is the finger of God, the magician said to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. They begin to recognize in this first, this is the, the, the end of the first cycle of plagues and the magicians begin to recognize, whoa, the person that we're dealing with here is bigger than us. This is his finger. And what they don't know is that God intends not just to show his finger to the nation of Egypt, but he intends to show his hand and his entire arm before he's done. Next is the fourth plague. This is a swarm of flies. Look at chapter eight, verse 20. The Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. When you see him going out of the water, tell him, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. But if you will not let my people go, then I will send swarms of flies against you, your officials, your people, and your houses. The Egyptians' houses will swarm with flies, and so will the land where they live. But listen to this, verse 22. But on that day, I will give special treatment to the land of Goshen, where my people are living. So this is the area of Egypt where the Israelites live. No flies will be there. This way, you will know that I, the Lord, am in the land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will take place tomorrow. Verse 24, and the Lord did this. Thick swarms of flies went into Pharaoh's palace and in his officials' houses. Listen to this. Throughout Egypt, the land was ruined because of the swarms of flies. Now in this plague, the fourth plague, God is making two things known. First, that God makes a distinction between his people and Pharaoh's people. That he will be faithful to his people by protecting them from the plagues. And God is making his intention known that he intends to destroy the land of Egypt. He intends to destroy the land of Egypt because of what they have done to his people. The first three plagues don't have the destruction that this plague does, and they continue to intensify from here. Pharaoh, after he sees the destruction, acts like he might let them go. 
And he asks Moses to intercede for him and take them away. But after the flies are gone, Pharaoh hardens his heart once again, and he refuses to let the people go, which leads to the fifth plague. Look at chapter nine, verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let them and keep holding them, then the Lord's, what? Then the Lord's hand will bring a severe plague against your livestock in the field, the horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all the Israelites that they own will die. God says, you you saw my finger, now you're about to see my whole hand your livestock is going to die. It says all the livestock is going to die. This is hyperbole. It's saying there's going to be a ton of livestock that die. The way that we know that is there's livestock later on in some of the future plagues. So lots of livestock throughout the nation of Egypt is going to die. It's like basically all of it's dead. Oh my goodness. That's the point. But notice this. Verse seven, Pharaoh sent messengers who saw that not a single one of the Israelite livestock was dead. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he did not let the people go. God continues to show that he's making a distinction. Pharaoh should send the Israelites out of Egypt, but instead he sends his messengers to go and check and see if God is true to his word. And he is. That leads to the sixth plague. Verse eight. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of furnace soot. And Moses is to throw it toward heaven in the sight of Pharaoh. It's like the LeBron James thing. You know, it will become fine dust over the entire land of Egypt. It will become festering boils on people and animals throughout the land of Egypt. So they took furnace and soot and stood before Pharaoh. Moses threw it toward heaven and it became festering boils on people and animals. Notice this, verse 11, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not listen to them as the Lord had told Moses. Now, God is showing that Moses and Aaron, the representatives of Israel, are greater than the magicians, the representatives of Egypt. They can't even stand before Moses and Aaron because they are in so much pain because of these boils, these things that are on their skin. But Moses and Aaron and the rest of the Israelites are unaffected. Which leads to the seventh plague. Look at chapter nine, verse 18. Tomorrow at this time, I will rain down the worst hail that has ever occurred in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Therefore, here's a warning. 
that the Lord is giving. Therefore, give orders to bring your livestock and all that you have in the field into shelters. Every person and animal that is in the field and not brought inside will die when the hail falls on them. Notice this. Those among Pharaoh's officials who feared the word of the Lord made their servants and livestock flee to shelters. But those who didn't take to heart the Lord's word left their servants and livestock in the field. God is warning them about what's to happen. And he's like, so look, hail's coming. So if you're smart, you should bring the stuff that you care about under shelter. If it's not under shelter, it's going to get destroyed. And some of the Egyptians begin to believe his word. And so they listen. But many others refuse to listen and they are destroyed, just as the Lord said. All of their remaining livestock, their plants, their crops, anything valuable, destroyed. Look at verse 33. Moses left Pharaoh in the city and spread out his hands to the Lord. Then the, hun- the thunder and hail ceased and rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain, hail, and thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his officials. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not let the Israelites go, as the Lord had said through Moses. God continues to make a distinction between his people and Pharaoh's people. Pharaoh's people continue to suffer as long as they listen to his word rather than listening to the word of the Lord. God is starting to turn up the heat on Pharaoh. He's proving more and more how powerful he is. And Pharaoh continues to arrogantly refuse to listen to the Lord, which leads to the eighth plague, locusts. Look at chapter 10, verse 3. So Moses and Aaron went in to Pharaoh and told him, this is what the Lord, the God of Hebrews says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let my people go, then tomorrow I will bring bring locusts into your territory. They will cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. They will eat the remainder left to you that escaped the hail. They will eat every tree you have growing in the fields. They will fill your houses, all your officials' houses and the houses of all the Egyptians. Something your fathers and grandfathers never saw since the time they occupied the land until today. Then he turned and left Pharaoh's presence. And then notice what Pharaoh's officials ask him in verse seven. The same question that God asks Pharaoh. How long, how long must this man be a snare to us? Let the men go so that they may worship the Lord, their God. Don't you realize yet that Egypt is devastated? But Pharaoh does not listen. Look at verses 16 and 17. 
After he sees the devastation, Pharaoh urgently sent for Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Please forgive my sin once more and make an appeal to the Lord your God so that he will just take this death away from me. So Moses left Pharaoh's presence and appealed to the Lord. Then the Lord takes the locusts away, but Pharaoh once again does not let the people go. The Lord is devastating the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh and his officials are finally starting to take notice. That leads to the ninth plague. Look at Exodus chapter 10, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, and there will be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was thick darkness throughout the land of Egypt for three days. One person could not see another and for three days they did not move from where they were. Yet all the Israelites had light where they lived. Darkness throughout the Bible is a picture of judgment. Darkness points back to the creation narrative when God spoke and there was light. He was bringing order to chaos. And now God is bringing the Egyptians back into chaos. Darkness is also a direct assault on the highest Egyptian God, whose name was Ra. Ra was personified in Egyptian art and literature by the sun. His sinking in the West represented death and his rising in the East represented life and resurrection. And here Yahweh, the true creator God, keeps Ra imprisoned in the realm of the dead. The sun does not come up in Egypt. But the people of Abraham have light where they live. This is a quick survey of the nine plagues. We could dive in and do a lot more detailed study. But today, our primary goal is to see what God's purpose was in these nine plagues. What is God doing in the plagues? What is he up to? Why the plagues? And here's why this question matters. If God's only goal in the Exodus was just to rescue his people and take them out of slavery and take them to the promised land, if that's all that God was doing, he could do that without the plagues. He could actually make it go a lot faster if instead of hardening Pharaoh's heart and making Pharaoh say no so that he has to have the plagues, if he softened Pharaoh's heart and let the people go. So why is the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart? Why is the Lord sending these plagues? What's he doing? What's his purpose? There are two things that help us answer that question. The first is the story leading up to the plagues that we've already looked at. And the second are the purpose statements that God gives us in the plagues. So let's talk about the story real quick. When God shows up to Moses at the burning bush, what is Moses's question for him? He says, what is your name? Moses wants to know who this God is. What's your name? And God tells him, I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh. I am the one who is. I am the greatest being in existence. That's who I am. So Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, hey, God showed up to me. 
The Lord, Yahweh, he said that you got to let my people go. And then what is Pharaoh's question? Who is the Lord? He's asking the same question that Moses is. God, who are you? Then, here's what God says in Exodus chapter 7, verse 5. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites from among them. What is God doing? He is introducing himself. Here's who I am. I am the Lord. The plagues start in chapter seven. In chapter six, the little phrase, I am the Lord appears five times. It appears in verse, in chapter six, verse two, verse six, verse seven, verse eight, and verse 29. Five times God says, I am the Lord. 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 You want to know who I am? I'm about to show you. You want to flippantly dismiss my commands? Let me introduce you to my power and my glory. God is going to answer their questions and show them who he is. So the questions leading up to the story help us answer, what is God doing? He's introducing himself. And this is consistent with what God says he's doing in the story. Here are some purpose statements. Look at chapter 7, verse 17. Chapter 7, verse 17. This is what the Lord says. Here is how you will know that I am the Lord. Here is how you will know. And remember what Lord means. It means he's the greatest one. He's the one who always is. He's the one who... All life comes from him. Here's how you will know he's the Lord. He's Yahweh. Here's how you will know that he is the master, the ruler, the controller, the the sovereign king over all things. Here's how you will know. Watch, I'm about to strike the water in the Nile with the staff in my hand and it will turn to blood. Here's how you will know. Chapter eight, verse 10 and 11. Look at this. Tomorrow is when this second plague is going to happen. He answered, Moses replied, as you have said, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord, our God, the frogs will go away. So that you will know there's no one like the Lord. Look at chapter eight, verse 22. But on that day, I will give special treatment to the land of Goshen where my people are living. No flies will be there. This way, you will know that I, the Lord, am in the land. Look at chapter 9, verses 14 14 through 16. For this time, I am about to send all of my plagues against you, your officials and your people. Then you will know there is no one like me on the whole earth. 
By now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with the plague and you would have been obliterated from the earth. However, I have let you live for this purpose to show you my power and to make my name known on the whole earth. Look at chapter nine, verse 29. Moses said to them, when I have left the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know the earth belongs to the Lord. Look at chapter 10, verses one through two. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials so that I may do these miraculous signs of mine among them. And so that you may tell your son and grandson how severely I dealt with the Egyptians and performed miraculous signs among them. And you will know that I am the Lord. Do I need to read any more? What is God doing in the plagues? What is his purpose? His purpose is to display his glory, the glory of his name, the power that he has. He is making it known that he is the greatest thing in existence. God, the way that theologians say this, is glorifying his name. He is making himself known so that all the world can worship him. He's putting his glory on display so that the Israelites, the Egyptians, and all generations will know him for who he really is, the incomparable, indestructible, supreme king over all things who keeps his promises and saves his people. That's what he's doing. Is this harsh? or arrogant? Is God an egotistical, vindictive maniac for doing this? What kind of person would be this self-absorbed that they would need for the world to look at them? Look at me, I'm the greatest. Look at me, I'm the greatest. What kind of weak God is this who would do that? God is not harsh, arrogant, egotistical, vindictive, self-absorbed. God knows he's the most supreme being in existence. He's the I am. He is existence. Life comes from him. Therefore, he knows that for people to worship anything else, to trust anything else, to fear anything else is foolish, short-sighted, and will only result in disappointment. And therefore, for God to be loving, he must display his glory. He must show the world who he is because he is the only thing that won't let you down and won't disappoint. He is the only thing that can guarantee that your life will endure because he is life. It's kind of like lots of sports illustrations today in honor of the Super Bowl, okay? One of my favorite movies growing up was the movie Hoosiers. And maybe you've seen it. If you haven't, it's about this small town in Indiana 
There's a high school basketball team that is an underdog story and makes it to the state championship in Indiana. Nobody expects them to be there because they're so small. It's a close game in the state championship. They steal the ball with 15 seconds left. They call timeout. They run over into the huddle. And in the huddle, everybody in the whole stadium thinks that we're going to give the ball to the best player. His name's Jimmy. And so the coach says, listen, we're going to use you as a decoy. All right. And so buddy, you're going to take the last shot. We're going to run the picket fence on him. And all of them are just kind of looking like, okay, nobody's saying anything in this intense moment. And so the coach is yelling at him and he's like, what's the matter with you? What's the matter with you? And Jimmy, the best player with the game on the line says, I'll make it. I'll make it. So the coach says, okay, scrap that play. Get it to Jimmy at the top of the key. You'll take the last shot. Jimmy was not being unloving and arrogant. Jimmy knew the best chance for the rest of you is for me to have the ball. And God says, hey, get me the ball. Get me the ball. It would be absolutely unloving for God to say, you know what? Why don't you worship Ra? Give him the ball. God says, I'll make it. (laughs) Give me the ball. The most loving, others first thing God can do is make his glory known. In the plagues then, God is displaying his glory so that all the world can know him and come to worship him. So, what do we learn about the Lord through the plagues? If God's goal is to display his glory, to make himself known, what do we learn about him? Three things. First, the Lord has power over creation. Only Yahweh, the Lord, controls creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in every single plague, God is demonstrating his power and authority over nature. Here's why this is so significant. Few things can convince us that we aren't in control, like nature. And few things have the power to ruin our lives, like nature. This is true of weather, storms that might come or drought that might come or famine that might come. This is true of disease and sickness. In all of those things, natural things that we cannot control, in all of those things, we're reminded that we really don't control our lives. Kate Bowler was a historian at Duke Divinity School. In 2013, she wrote a history of the prosperity gospel. And in 2015, she was diagnosed with stage four cancer. In 2016, she wrote an op-ed 
in the New York Times that was reflecting on the irony of being an expert on the prosperity gospel who had an incurable disease. And then this op-ed turned into a book. In the book, here's what she says. Control is a drug. And we are all hooked, whether or not we believe in the prosperity gospel's assurance that we can master the future with our words and attitudes. I can barely admit to myself that I have almost no choice but to surrender. But neither can those around me. I can hear it in my sister-in-law's voice as she tells me to keep fighting. I can see it in my academic friends when they ask, when did the symptoms start and is this hereditary? Buried in all of their concern is the unspoken question, do I have any control? In the plagues, God is demonstrating that he and he alone has authority over nature. And if Yahweh has authority over nature, that means he has authority over life and death. So think about how significant it was that Jesus showed up at a wedding and turned water into wine. Think about how significant it was that Jesus was teaching on one side of the lake, wanted to go to the other side, and rather than take a boat or walk around, he just walked across the water. Think about how significant it was that Jesus would touch people and their illness would go away, that Jesus would touch people and their skin would be healed, that Jesus would give sight to blind people and hearing to deaf people, that Jesus would raise the dead. Think about how significant it is that Jesus, after he suffered and died, would be raised from the dead himself. The plagues are designed to help the world know that Yahweh alone controls creation. He's the Lord of creation. The gospels are designed to help us see that the Lord is Jesus. God stares death in the face and says, that guy? Second, God displays his glory. He's introducing himself in the plagues and here's what he's showing us, that the Lord will judge false gods and their followers. He will judge false gods and their followers. Here's how the ancient world thought. If we're gonna have crops, then we better follow or worship the sun God and the, you know, the rain God and the crops God and the, you know, And if we're going to have a family and if we're going to have our, you know, if our livestock are going to multiply and have families, then we need to follow the fertility God so that they can do this stuff. And if we're going to be healthy, then we need to go to this God. And by sending the plagues, God is proving how much greater he is than Pharaoh and Pharaoh's gods. And he does that in a miraculous, overwhelming way. Today, the Super Bowl is going to happen. If the Bengals win, there's going to be a lot of people who say, it was just one game. We're not really sure who the better team is, but they played better that day. And, and 
That's why in baseball and basketball, you settle the championship with a series because a series gives you the best chance of saying, we're not worried about it. You know, uh, give us seven games, the best team will win. God arranged a 10 game series and swept the series against Pharaoh and Pharaoh's gods. That's who God is. In the plagues, God is flexing on the greatest empire in the world so that all the world might turn from trusting in their foolish, stupid idols and trust in him. Anyone who continues to fear false gods more than they fear Yahweh will regret it. And idolatry was not just a problem for the ancient world. An idol is anything you fear could destroy you or anything you trust to protect you or satisfy you. Is there anything that you're afraid could destroy your life? A health crisis, a financial crisis, a national crisis, a secret getting out and your reputation being ruined, a failure of some kind? then maybe underneath the, that fear is something that you really believe has power to destroy you. What do you believe could protect you from any of those fears? Doctors and insurance policies and eating and exercise habits. If you have the best doctors and the best eating and exercise habits, will that prevent you from getting the diagnosis you don't want to get? Does that mean it's unwise to have good doctors and good insurance policies and good eating and exercise habits? No, but they can't control your life. Are your investment accounts and your property and your entrepreneurial prowess, are they things that you believe can protect you? Your talent or giftedness? Is having a strong military? Is having... Privacy and control are those things that you believe could protect you. What do you believe that if you had it, your life would be satisfied? Is it sex? Is that why you're drawn to watching porn or sleeping around or having an affair? Is it fame? Is that why you want to be known by the right people and be connected? Is it success, making it and building something that proves your worth? Is it power? Is it money? If you could get to this amount, once we hit this amount, then we'll really be able to take it easy. God looks at all of these and says, that guy? Only God can finally save you and secure you. Only God can fully and finally satisfy you. Only God can deliver you from death itself. It's the kindness of God to expose what we trust in as utterly incapable of delivering what it promises. It's his kindness to remove idols and help you see he alone controls life and death.
And here's the third thing. In the plagues, God is displaying his glory. He's showing that he will be faithful to Abraham's family. God promised Abraham that he would give him and his family the land of Canaan, but right now they're in Egypt. He promised Abraham that he would bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. And here's a whole nation that is cursing his family. And God does not lie. And so he will not stand for it. Is Abraham's family any better than the Egyptians? No. Is Abraham's family free from idol worship? No. Will Abraham's family always be grateful and faithful to the Lord? No. But will God be faithful to Abraham's family? Yes. A hundred percent of the time, yes. Pharaoh has treated Abraham's family like a worthless race, like they're not even human by enslaving them and oppressing them. And God will not stand for this. He sends the plagues on Egypt and intentionally makes it obvious he is protecting the Hebrews, making a distinction between those inside Abraham's family and those outside. And some of the Egyptians finally start to clue into that. They're like, wait a minute. Over there, everything's fine. What if we just went over there and we became part of them? Ah, you know, but... Those people are so disgusting and beneath us. I mean, they're shepherds and, oh, that's, oh. And they have all kinds of weird practices and they smell weird and they're a different culture and they talk different. And, oh, we just, we couldn't be part of that. And yet some of them overcome that and say, we want to be part of this family. And so next week, we're going to see that there's a mixed multitude that goes out of Egypt. That is, there are Egyptians who say, we want to be part of, hey, we're sorry, we were wrong. We want to be part of your family. What do we got to do to get in? And here is the good news for you. God continues to keep his promises to Abraham's family. And here is what Galatians chapter three, verse 29 says. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise, the invitation for you to be delivered from the God who will judge false gods and their followers. The invitation to you is come join the family. And the way that you join the family now is not by going to Abraham and getting circumcised. The way that you join the family now is by coming to Abraham's son, Jesus, the one who died on the cross in your place, the one who was raised from the dead, overcoming death, The one who in his hands has power over all things. And he is the one who invites you now to come and trust him. Repent of trusting other things and trust him. Fear him alone. So I don't know what you might be worried about. I don't know what you might be afraid of. But I know that the Lord, the Lord looks at any and all obstacles 
and says, that guy? Let me pray for you. Father, we praise you for being the Lord. You are the one who is. You are sovereign over all things. And yet you still look at us and love us. God, would that truth soften our hearts? Would it humble us? God, would we praise your name and your name alone? Pray that you would cause faith to rise up I pray that you and your glory would be displayed through us. It's in your son's name that I ask. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us? As we start this song, I just want to read these verses from Psalm 105. Give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Proclaim his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praise to him, tell about his wondrous works, honor his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength, seek his face always. Remember the wondrous works he has done, his wonders and the judgments he has pronounced. You offspring of Abraham, his servant, Jacob's descendants, his chosen ones. Let's sing.